Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Carol Ray. Locked down for the time being in sunny Suffolk. And you're lucky enough to be listening to the best podcast there is. The one and only Tennis Podcast. Well, thank you and hello to Carol Ray, who you heard there in our intro. Uh, That intro was recorded in May during what we're now calling Lockdown One in the UK and uh, has sadly, or maybe brilliantly for Carol, uh, come back into fashion today because uh, the UK, as of 11 hours and 34 minutes ago, has entered lockdown number two. David... How are we doing yeah. with lockdown two back with a vengeance? Doing all right, thanks so far. Uh, I'm recording a podcast with you two, so um, you know, same old really. Um, uh, but yeah, it's. I, I think the 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 tough thing for for, for everybody is just the the lack of social sport. That certainly in my sphere of friends and family and so forth, not being able to go and play tennis and take the kids to play football, etc. Um, I know the the LTA have have made their case for why they think um, tennis should be allowed to carry on socially distanced, um, and you know I really do understand that line of thinking. Obviously for the sports themselves, but also for the just the activity, the physical fitness and activity of of people. Um, but at the same time, got to get rid of this, uh, or at least dampen the virus down. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play by the rules, Catherine, and just go out and um, and do pee with daddy with my kids. And looked at from another's perspective, it's a month's sweet relief from being thrashed by 14 year olds. Matt, true. <laughs> Matt, how yeah, are you I, doing? Well, I mean, and just to say, I play. I mean, I did play one final uh, night of tennis on on Tuesday, and things didn't go very well i mean i i i had one of those days where i was trying to be what i see on a daily basis on the professional circuit i was trying to thrash rising backhands early on the half folly and i hit one out of about 68 in the court in the space of the day Uh, and i also tried one of those interception slam dunk smash volleys when playing doubles and i did an air shot that didn't look good. Um, and I was also aced by a drop shot serve. So, you know, a deliberate, overall. a deliberate drop shot serve. No, 
No, no just right. one of those sort of normal regulation armed arm rolled over serve. Sounds like a I real mi- high caliber of tennis. <laughs> yeah, being that I, I misjudged the bounce of it and lurched forward, and it bounced twice. <laughs> What's the process of picking partners when you play these social tennis evenings, David? I have a horrible image in my mind of. Someone being left to last. What do you mean, someone? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. You buckled it there, Matt, didn't you? (laughs) I did. Um, Well, there are 12 (laughs) of us, and and we rotate after half an hour spells as, as doubles pairings. And the losers have to move court and then split up. Uh, And shame. Move down. I moved three times (laughs) out of three. That is a very democratic attitude towards... uh, Community tennis playing. Yeah. Uh, democracy very much in fashion this week. Do you see what I did there? I do. I do. Yeah, I I do. yeah well, well in, fashion, in fashion with some portions of, uh, of the electorate in the United States. Yeah. Given um, I've got CNN on for about the 68th consecutive hour, yes, I do understand what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm on uh, about two and a half hours sleep because I keep getting, every time I consider going to sleep, CNN lure me back in with promises of... Uh, sort of results from counties in Arizona that I've never heard of and didn't know would be a feature of my life. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that, is, uh, that is the turn that my life has taken this week. So if you are a vote counter in Nevada or Arizona, turn the podcast off and pull your flipping finger out <laughs> because I'd like to get some sleep. Um Matt, how are you doing? Well, similar to you, I've I've developed an unhealthy addiction to CNN. I feel a bit like Joey and Chandler in that episode of Friends when they discover they have free porn. I've sort of discovered I have <laughs> CNN. <laughs> I just can't stop watching it. It is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I have never seen a, a touchscreen on an election night, which is usually ripe for comedy and satire i've never seen one operated as elegantly as as by as by the cnn team yeah john king and phil mattingly matingly i think he's called i'm just in awe of their ability to broadcast non-stop for what are we now 48 yeah, david's getting ideas hours yes <laughs> i can see the words podcast-a-thon sort of <laughs> scrolling across uh, david's brain Funny you should say that. It has actually given me some ideas. But anyway, enough of that for now. Um, before we move on to talk about tennis, well, sort of about tennis. This is our, uh, well, it's another listener question show because um, we had so many come in last week. There's plenty more good ones still to answer. Um, we'll be bringing you uh, wrapping up news of the AT Masters 1000 event in Paris uh, on Monday. Um, there's sort of a couple of rounds into that event as we come to you now. Um, but, Matt. Yes. Important business before any of that. I, can't, I mean, frankly, before the US election. I don't know what we've been dilly-dallying around with for six minutes. Happy Matt Roberts Day. <laughs> yeah, happy Matt Roberts Day, Matt Roberts. Thank you very much. Should we explain that? I do I do get some people wishing me a happy birthday on this day. <laughs> do you feel a little bit like the Queen with two days? Today is the two-year anniversary of Matt's first pro- 
proper appearance on the podcast is Matt's debut as a full contributor to the podcast because you did you did make a cameo didn't you at the US Open earlier that year so we can't call it your debut or even quite. the year before that was it wow okay it was quite a gap between mm. appearances mm. um so it, it wasn't quite your debut but i would say your debut as a fully fledged uh contributing on air podcaster w- would you like to relive that moment well, I mean, you're going to anyway, so <laughs> let's just roll it. Oh, no. This is for players ranked 9 to yeah. 16. So if you just literally cut off one ahead and said, right, the top seven qualify for the WCA finals and the eighth qualifier comes from the Zuhai field, yeah. that would be awesome. Absolutely, and it instantly gives it relevance, instantly would make a lot of people tune in. Who wouldn't want Ash Barty to have played in Singapore last Let's week? check what Grad Matt thinks of that. What do you think, Grad Matt? Oh, blimey, this is my cue, is yeah. it? I, yeah. I deliberately didn't intro well Brad i want to know Mac, what he thinks i was gonna do a big build-up but he's sitting right just, here i want to know what he thinks i did have a i had a build-up planned Matt, oh okay well, yeah. you'll yeah. never hear are you on board again. with that yeah i think it's a good idea i mean what is good is that you know that the player who's won zuhai would be in form what has aged well with the it was the casual way that uh matt dealt with our argument there <laughs> which i've completely forgotten about but Upon a re-listen, really irritated me because I did have a big, big build-up plan for you, Matt. And what two years it? later, it's still never been heard because David doubted me and gazumped me. That brings mm, back memories of sort of where we were, and it's quite relevant. We were, weren't we sort of locked down in the downstairs of a pub? It was completely empty, wasn't it? It was kind of we were. very 2020 vibes. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, we were. We were, we had the whole basement of a pub in. Was it in Marlebone? Yeah, to ourselves, Saint mm. John. I don't know what it's called. Saint <laughs> John Balcom Pub. That was it. Go uh, on. Tell, what was yeah. your intro going to be, Catherine? Well, I don't know, but I imagine it was some <laughs> some wonderfully eloquent um, and fitting words in in tribute to the the great Matt Roberts, which will never be never be heard. Yeah. Sorry Mm. about that, everybody. (laughs) Mm. Anyway, two years ago today, we've spared you all the hot takes about Karen Hatchinov that (laughs) that nobody needs to hear. Yeah, I did listen back to them today. And, uh, well, apparently I'd run a pole vault earlier that day Mm. in which I'd said, who's going to win a Grand Slam first? Out of (laughs) – look at Catherine's face – out of Alexander Zverev. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas and there was one other and Karen Hachinov and um, yeah we we were big on Hachinov at that point because he'd just beaten Djokovic hadn't he in the final of Paris but mm. and yeah. we're still waiting <laughs> we did slightly overdo it I think but uh, and I think I'm trying to think I think we I think we we said that he would have the most success in the long run. I think we said Zverev was the most likely to win a slam first. Obviously, none of them has done it yet. Um, but but I think we were we were so taken by Hatchinov's movement uh, and and forehand and manhandling of Djokovic on that day that yeah we did definitely get and we we acknowledged our own recency bias and we can now acknowledge it again. <laughs> and and it was only what a couple of months after that match he played against Nadal at the US Open 
of course, which was which was still sort of very vivid in, in my mind, as I recall. I mean, in in minor defence of the Hatchinov hot takes, he has been disappointing for me over the last two years. He he has yeah, he's disappointed. He has I'm not sure he's improved as a tennis player over the course of the last two years. And I do think there is untapped potential there given that we we've gone down the next gen who's going to have the most success debate route shall we start off with a question from michael clary who asks who wins a slam first felix or dennis so orja aliasim or shapovalov now he's not given an or neither option there there's definitely an undercurrent of assumption that both of them will become Grand Slam champions. Discuss. Well, first of all, I'd like to ask you both. Do you think they will both win a Grand Slam title? <laughs> Who's presenting this thing, David? You've done a Matt Roberts Day 2018. <laughs> I just want to know. <sighs> For goodness sake. All right, OK, well, we'll leave that until later. Who's going to do it first? Is that what you've asked me? Uh, what was his name again? Well, was asked I said that? discuss. I left it very open because I'm, right. a, I'm a nifty questioner like that. Yeah, mm. yeah that's, she's on the telly, folks. <laughs> There's a reason. Um, I oh, We've made Matt uncomfortable on Matt Roberts' <laughs> day. <laughs> uh, it's nothing he's not unused to. Um, so... I'd probably go Felix Auger-Aliassime is going to win one first if if they both do at all. And I'm not convinced they will both do now. Um, Are you convinced but, that one will? Yes, yes. I, I'd be very surprised if Felix Auger-Aliassime doesn't end up f- f- fig- figuring, it, figuring it out. I think he's got the... The perfect physique for for a tennis player of this generation. He's fast. He's tall. He's powerful. He's got great hand eye coordination. I think he's got some stuff to work out tactically, approach wise. But there have been enough signs this year, just of meaningful improvement, albeit not always what I'm. I, I keep expecting more from him. It, it, you'll see a sign, uh, something will happen, and I'm expecting him to, to just race off now and just start doing it regularly and winning titles. And, of course, he hasn't won any titles. So the, there's a big hump to get over still. But I think the potential is there. Shapovalov, I think, has, has made some strides, but the, he, he's still so erratic at times and, and emotional. He's struggling to get on top of the emotional side of his game now. Um, so, yeah, he's got some work to, more work to do, I think, overall. Matt? Yeah, I think it's hard because at the moment we're measuring degrees of how far away they are from winning a Grand Slam. Neither is particularly close. Um, but I still maintain confidence that at least one of them will, but less so because of them and more so because of just how the landscape is going to look in three, four, five years' times when there will be more opportunity and someone like them will probably seize that opportunity. I think I think I would slightly give the edge towards your Eliasim as well. Uh, the thing which concerns me with Shapovalov is he's he's slightly ahead of seem in terms of development he's had more years on the tour but I think if you compare Shapovalov the player now to the one we saw three years ago 
I'm not sure there's been a huge development. I think he's a better player, but I'm not sure it's three years worth. If you compare Sitsipas to three years ago to now, I think the improvement is very significant. Whereas I think Aurelia seems still got time maybe to improve in the when he's very young and get to a level which he can build on and win slams from that. As you said, we've seen flashes of absolute brilliance from him this year, which which does give me faith that that he can win a slam one day in the future. So I would I would just about give the edge to Orger Eliasim. Um but I think they've both got issues they need to overcome. I think for Orger Eliasim it's well, the serve is a big problem. I mean, too many double faults. Shapovalov has a similar issue, I would say. And as David pointed out, that kind of he's so emotional on the court. I'm not sure he's quite figured out how best to to harness all of that. Um, but yeah, just just giving the eggs to Felix. Yeah, I, I would say the same. I, I don't think it's a given uh, that either of them will. I would be very surprised, I think, if Felix Auger Eliassim didn't, part, uh, partly because of his potential and partly because, frankly, the the standard required to win a Grand Slam on the men's side is going to get lower. That That's a fact. Tennis is cyclical. It has been lower um, in the past at times than it, than it is now. It may end up at some point in the future being higher than it is now. But it, it it is during the course of their careers probably at the the point where age wise you'd expect them to be peaking the standard required to win a slam will lower and a lot of mental baggage will evaporate because I do think these these young guys Shapovalov maybe in particular is accumulating mental mental baggage against the the top players um, I do I do have concerns about Shapovalov. And whether he has the same affliction that that Grigor Dimitrov has, and it, it saddens me to be using Grigor Dimitrov as a as a as an example of why someone might not end up winning a slam. But here we are. Um, yeah, I, I just I worry he has so many options at his disposal and doesn't have the chip, the Federer chip required to sort of sort through those options and make the right decisions sort of instinctively. Um, whereas Felix Auger, I seem, I agree, he do, he's got development and developmental issues at the moment that, that need resolving, but I really, I do back him to, to make the right career decisions. I remember, do you remember a couple of years ago when he was 18, I think, and he, he skipped Wimbledon um, and he, and he, I think it would have been his first chance to play Wimbledon in in the main draw as a senior player. And he, he just went and played week after week after week of challenger events on clay just to kind of harden himself and build his ranking. Um, and I, I'm so impressed with that decision making and the foundation that that gave him. So that sort of thing really makes me feel confident in Felix auger in a way that I don't quite about Denis Shapovalov at the moment. But mm. I I hope to be wrong. And I think he could there's have a always the Australia career to fall back on. So well, there is. Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. just got a feeling uh Auger may have a a really good Australia um 
coming off a good full season. I think he's learnt things about himself. I think he'll go... Well, I think he's one of those players, I think, who goes away and doesn't just go on holiday and think, right, mm. I'll think about tennis when tennis comes around again, which, you know, sometimes you need to be able to do that and disengage. But I think he's the sort who would go away and analyse, look mm. at his own game, look at others and analyse, where do I where do I need to improve here? Mm. Yes, like you, Catherine, I do hope I'm wrong about Denis Shapovalov. I still maintain that the most exciting tennis among the so-called next-gen is Denis Shapovalov mm. peaking. Agreed. I love seeing him play well when mm. he plays well. And I think the comparison with Dimitrov's really interesting and right. I do think it's possible that Shapovalov's a bit more explosive than Dimitrov. I think mm -hmm. it's, he could have a two weeks where everything comes together and he knocks everyone off the court. It's, it's possible. Um, as you said, in the future when the standard required has, has dipped that little bit. I can't see him doing that if he needs to go through Nadal and Djokovic. I just don't think he can sustain that tennis against certainly both of them. Mm. Also more difficult over five sets because I was thinking, mm. I think he almost has Iga Sviantek qualities of, of, of blowing people away. But, I, but can you do that against the very best over such a duration? Mm. I'm going to give you a very similar question now, but on the women's side. A lot of name is about to be fired at you, so settle in. Uh, this comes from Daniel93. Uh, and the question is, Sakari, Mukova, Mertens, Yastremska, Rabatkina, Kontovate, who wins a slam first? I find that quite an interesting selection of players, actually, because... I wouldn't put Mertens and Contivate in the same kind of bracket as Yastremska, Rabatkina, Mukova. Um, not sure about Sakari. I like Sakari. the selection, though. I do yeah, like that it's very selection. interesting. It's very they're, they're interesting. Not, you know, it's like you say, Mertens is an established player mm. who's reached a semi-final of a Grand Slam. But at the same time, she's hit a ceiling at this point. And the other's have got the potential. So do they? Do they all have the potential? I mean none of them well, are jumping out to me as They're certainly younger, aren't they? And, and therefore we we don't know we don't really I don't think we just we just don't know as much mm. about them yet. There isn't to use a Matt Roberts day special. There isn't enough data just now um to make a firm Well, decision. on the basis of what data we have, David, which is the question that Daniil93 is asking us. Who wins a slam first? I, I think there is... I definitely think there's a chance that none of them do. But I think if I was going to pick one of them, it would be Mukova. Because I think she's got a lot to her game. I don't sense scar tissue or something mentally that's just going to completely disrupt her and stop her from fulfilling her potential, which I think with someone like Sakari, I think she could end up stopping herself because she gets uptight in, in important moments. Um, wonderful athlete, etc. cetera. Um, Rubakina is a huge hitter, but I feel that 
when I've watched her play, I mean, she's very tall and strong and incredible athlete, but I find her a little one-dimensional. So I, and that may, maybe I'm not seeing the full extent of her abilities, but that's, that's the sense I get. Mertens, I think, just has a natural ceiling, a great pro who's going to keep on producing performances up to her seeding, but I don't think she beats top players when she gets to quarters and semis. Um, Contivate, I think, has definitely has room still to improve, and she's made major strides the last year. I know her coach well, and I really trust his judgment, Nigel Sears. Um, so I think, I think if, if Contivate had a good draw she could take take advantage of it and actually end up going all the way to a final. I think that that's definitely possible. But in terms of just the highest ceiling, to me, I would go for Mukova. Uh, Yastremsko is also a prodigious talent in terms of ball striking, but she seems... I don't find her 100%... Not, I don't want to say committed, because I'm sure she wants to win, but I don't see the focus. I don't see the... She she seems to get distracted and get in her own way too much. So uh, I I think she could go either way. Matt, yeah, there's a lot going on with Yastremska. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like I like the way David's categorised them there. I see Yastremska and Rabatkina playing style wise as similar ball strikers, a little bit one dimensional. I would slightly put Contivate in a similar bracket to Mertens. In terms of the ceiling, um, I think they're incredibly consistent, solid players who, if a draw breaks, they might come through it. Um, but I'm not sure I'd ever find myself picking them to win the tournament at the start of the event, for example. I don't see them in that kind of level. Um, and yeah, to me, probably Mukova jumps out with the one with the most game, the most variety, the most potential. But kind of... I guess it reflects the state of the two tours. I actually think in the women's game, we we could see a situation where the level required to win a slam is going to go up because you've got Osaka, Andrescu, Sviontek, Barty, who are all so young and have already won slams. If they can become a core group, I'm, I'm not sure they'll be dominating the slams in the way the big three have in in the men's game, but I could I could see them forming a reasonably dominant group and it being harder to break through. If the trend continues on the WTA tour, I think it's likely that one of these six players will win one, just kind of the odds. But I'm, I am having a hard time picking one, but then I wouldn't have said Kenin this time last year. I wouldn't have said Kenin Mm. would be a grand slam champion and a two time finalist. So it's, it's very, very difficult, but to me, the the person whose game excites me the most is Mukova. Mm. Yeah, unfortunately, I would agree with everything you've you've both said. I don't have an awful lot to add. She's got the most in her game uh, of those listed. I feel like Variety is having a moment. Variety is is very much back in fashion, which is which is absolutely great to see. I like her mentality. Um, I I think. I think I, I um, didn't I pick her to f- make the the finals this mm. year, which I'm sure would have happened in a normal year. Let's just as- assume it would have. You went big on Rublev and Mukova. Yes. I All right, Matt. Broadly this stand is, by that. Yeah. This is Matt Roberts' day, not Catherine Woodard's day. <laughs> 
um I, I, yeah i i don't disagree i feel like with contivate she she has brilliant moments and she can look breathtaking and world beating but i feel like i've seen contivate best and she may replicate that but i don't think there's something still to come from contivate that she hasn't shown us yet i feel like unless a draw really breaks for her it's not going to happen because why wouldn't have it happen why wouldn't it have happened already um sakari i think i said sakari earlier didn't i apologies for that it is sakari and i um, said something in between <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry maria <laughs> Zachary is perhaps the one that I have question marks over when I know other people are are, are going big on her. Certainly at the US Open, I had quite a lot of people predicting her to potentially win it. I'm not convinced of her um, game yet. Obviously, as an athlete, she's extraordinary and her commitment to the sport and her desire is beyond question. But her actual game, and I could be wrong here... I mean, it it just it breaks down, doesn't it? It's not as smooth. It's not. It doesn't look as technically sound to me. It's not as smooth. And look, there are plenty of um, non-perfect technicians that have won slams, but it is it's more liable to break down when she gets stressed. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm just not quite as convinced as as perhaps some others about Zachary. But it it, it could be that that dogged desire will will kind of plug those technical gaps for her who knows is there a player outside of these six who we think would win a grand slam before them for the first time we've all kind of said we're not totally convinced that any of them will is is there a player on the wta tour at the moment who you're thinking right she's going to be the next one to win a first time slam i'm, I'm not sure there is for me i mean kind of Looking at the rankings, you would say Svitolina or Pliskova or Burton's would be ahead of these players. But I actually don't really feel like they are, even though they've accomplished more and they've been knocking on the door a little bit more. I think the fact that they've not, kind of the case you made with Contivate, the fact that they've not come through it already actually makes me feel less confident about their chances. Sabalenka, Bencic. Mm. Bengtschik at the end of last season was really gathering some momentum I thought and mm. looking really good It's she's had a curtailed season obviously um, yeah Bengtschik would be one I would say Coco Goff too early Anisimova Jennifer Brady <laughs> it was only a matter of time <laughs> what about Vondrasova maybe you know fully fit if she gets yeah. fit but I, the I drop would go- shot is the the shot of the moment. I do think Brady, if she can carry on improving mm. because she's made such strides, strides that I didn't foresee. And I also think her commitment to, to improvement is is right there. I think she's another one I could see doing really well in Australia. Mm. God, there's so many, isn't there? Madison Keys, mm. Ons Jabur. Do you know, I, I just got up the WTA rankings to check that I wasn't... Uh, omitting anyone and i scanned past madison keys and mm. i feel a bit sad about that but it is sad yes um but i agree with but you but I, I stand mean, by it yeah it, it, there is a woman who has not made strides in recent years mm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Next question, folks, from Cadbury Boy 2000. He says, what are you excited about in the tennis world for next year? Let's go to optimist David Law first <laughs> on this one, shall we? What have you got, um, David? What is there to look forward to? I think, albeit from afar, I think the Australian Open will feel like a tennis tournament when you watch it, like a tennis tournament from the past. I think <laughs> oh. that they will... Oh, God. That turn of phrase has just stabbed me through the heart, David. Yes, I feel like whilst for us it won't make a lot of difference because I can't imagine us being there. I can't imagine many people we know being able to go. They won't have international traveling media, bar a few, I wouldn't have thought. Um, They won't have, I doubt, international fans, certainly very many of them. But I think that they may well, given that they have squashed the the virus in Victoria just by the most severe lockdown of of basically three months to a point where I think if they can continue keeping it suppressed and make the decision that they will just only have Australian fans in the stadium and I guess maybe New Zealand fans, they may be able to have quite a lot of fans. And therefore, I think that because the, the country loves that tournament so much i think it could be an incredible atmosphere that's that's what i'm looking forward to just uh, just to help bridge the gap between hopefully when more tournaments start feeling like that in tennis because i'm a a very small person though apparently compared to you david 
as as much as what you described there, I am looking forward to that. I'm also dreading it because we won't be there and we'll be watching this window of normality and joy from a place where we're unlikely to be experiencing those things. And I am already dreading the FOMO that I will fear feel. It, I think it'll run pretty cold in my veins. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've made your positive into a negative. You're welcome. Yeah, but, that, but I'll take your negative and I'll say a year from then... We may well be there. Yeah, that's a really long time, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. Deferred gratification. And plus, we get to watch it on the telly and, and do this every night or every day after the after play, which will be great. Yes, yep. it won't be three o'clock in the morning. That'll be no. a well, bit of a positive. We'll be watching. No, but not when we're recording. Yeah. We'll no. have to do shifts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I think what you're saying there, Catherine, is why i really enjoyed the us open this year because it was a it was a grand slam so of its time and it felt like from here i could relate to what was happening there and maybe there'll be a bit more distance in australia but equally i am i'm hopeful that like david it will be it will be uplifting to some degree um i'm hopefully looking forward to all the events we didn't have this year you know, just hoping that they can happen next year in some capacity. And I'm thinking about the grass court season, Queens and Wimbledon. Well, Wimbledon's going to happen regardless. Yeah. We know that. They've said that they will hold it behind closed doors if they need to do so. And then I think the the team and country events, you know, hopefully we can have a Davis Cup finals and the first Fed Cup finals and the Olympics, you know, I mean... I preface all this with a lot of concern and worry about the viability of these events and the development of the virus. We just don't know, but I am I'm clinging to some bit of hope that those events, which we sadly didn't get this year, will will happen next year because I missed them. I really did. I love those events. Don't say the word Olympics to me, man. No. I can't. I can't handle it. <laughs> it's the hope that kills. Yeah. Um, I I just hope we can all go to a tennis event next year in some capacity. I just miss being mm-hmm. at sport. I hope that we can all sit and watch a, a tennis match, even if we're the only people in the stadium. I mean, I hope we're not, but I really miss it. Um, so that's what I'm looking forward to. I hope we can record a podcast in your flat. We haven't yes. done one of those since uh, February, Gosh, yeah. March, early March, late February. Yeah. Just Gosh, before the I would love Indian to... Wells. I'd love to be in the same room as Matt and David. Is that too much <laughs> to ask for? <laughs> that says a lot, really. Yeah. <laughs> if that's what you're open for. <laughs> <laughs> we probably will. We probably will make it to the uh, year mark of not actually seeing one another, won't we? Hmm. Happy thoughts, happy thoughts. Um, right then, uh, Gerald, which I think might be Gerald the cat, our yes, Wimbledon it is. mascot, which means it's Daryl, which means it's uh, David's David's mate, Daryl, who uh, took the our appeal for 
uh, podcast questions is just an opportunity to troll David, which I <laughs> very much approve of, Daryl. Uh, his question, or one of them, we, we edited out most of the ones that were just <laughs> harassing David about his tennis ability. Uh, his <laughs> question is, is Federer in danger of the bronze medal when it comes to who is the best out of the big three? I would say yes, absolutely. In well, he's serious the, he's the favourite of for it. a bronze yeah, medal, isn't he? Really, absolutely. in terms of just what the numbers say, Grand Slam title-wise, and and I mean he's likely to lose the number one weeks record to Djokovic, isn't he? In the not too distant future, isn't he? Yeah, I think Federer is over three hundred, and Djokovic is closing in on that. As you say, I think he's very, very likely to overtake that next year. Um, and Nadal's obviously already equaled Federer's Grand Slam total and is likely to overtake that next year. So yes, I would say if you're basing it purely on on those numbers, I think when it's all said and done, I think Federer will be sitting behind Djokovic and Nadal. Whether that changes people's perception is a different conversation, I would say. And I think Federer, just the fact that he came first out of those three that is ingrained in people's minds of him as the greatest or the best i think that's there's such a strong wave of feeling towards federer that i'm not sure necessarily numbers will replace if you like but if you're looking at it purely objectively i think yes in the way gerald's put it a bronze medal is likely to be hanging around federer's neck mm. Uh, Nadal, by the way, 209 weeks at number one, according to Wikipedia. Um, and then there are five players ahead of him. Interesting to look back. I remember when Pete Sampras was trying to catch Ivan Lendl on number one weeks. And Lendl had obviously just about got ahead of Jimmy Connors. He had 270 weeks to Connors, 268. Uh, Sampras on 286. Djokovic now in second place on 293, this says. I'm not sure whether that's completely up to date. And then Federer is at 310. So, yes, it's basically a, a few months that Djokovic needs to stay at number one. I mean, he could do that next year uh, to, to surpass Federer. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, strength of feeling. I don't think anything that happens between now and retirement will alter the fact that Federer retires as the most popular of the three overall in terms of the sheer number of people that would call themselves his fan. Um, I think that's just the way it is. And there are a number of reasons for that. I think, as you say, longevity, he's been doing this for such a long time. He built up a following before either of the others were, were playing. His style of, of play, I think, is just appeals to, to many, many people. Um, but yeah, in terms of just simple lining up the statistics Djokovic and certainly Nadal Grand Slam numbers wise I would expect to be ahead of him and I think Djokovic probably will catch him as well I think the only really significant record that that Federer can go for uh, that the other two were very unlikely to get I think both of them is the all-time titles record currently held by Jimmy Connors 109 titles Federer is on 103 Nadal 84 and Djokovic 77 look it's possible that they could chase him down but I think I think pretty unlikely uh, and look 
seven titles to to overtake Jimmy Connors is absolutely not a given. But I think as he nears it, given the stage he's at of his career, that will be the one that will see him hunt down. Because I, I think it it's could end up being the only record of significance that that he has next to his name when all's said and done. Um, I do think next year is going to be very interesting indeed. If te- tennis ends up being strange for all of next year, crowdless or certainly compromised in terms of crowds, Federer is going to have some big decisions to make. I mean, look, he said he's he's not that interested in in playing tennis without crowds. Well, what if that sort of becomes his only option? I mean, he's not just going to sit on the sidelines for all of next year, is he, if he's able to play tennis? But but equally, he won't want to end his career playing that kind of tennis. No, his, his so, exit strategy for tennis, if mm. he has one, whether he thinks about that, I mean, obviously we heard from Stefan Edberg a while back as to whether that sort of lap of honour type exit is a good idea or not and he said absolutely not and he'd advised Federer against it but so if if there is a strategy I think that that is going to be a bit of a movable feast over the next year but I do again I'm going to to be optimistic I think there is a chance that we could see Roger Federer on a pretty I don't know whether to say full but even if it's half full Rod Laver Arena if they bring everybody as far forward in the crowd as they can I think that that could be an image we see in, in January and I think that could be really cool. Yes but I I think the Australian swing because of where Australia is at with uh, with covid is probably the the if I had to commit to what portion of next season is going to feel the most normal mm. I'd probably go for for Australia. So then, what? What does yeah. he do after? What does he do after that? I um, think he, he he would almost be tempted to shut it down until the grass. Mm. It's going to be very interesting. What what I would love to see is if he is hunting down uh, that that one hundred and nine uh, titles record held by Jimmy Connors. I mean, imagine if we see him entering, you know, a behind closed doors Sophia this time next year. <laughs> if he just thinks, right, well, it's all. It's all gone to hell. My my retirement, my exit strategy is just forget it. I'll just go for that 110 titles. Sophia, here I come. Imagine <laughs> Crowd if be you, damned. Imagine if you are the the tournament director of Nur Sultan <laughs> next year, who about six weeks out, just mobile phone goes, hello, it's Roger. Could happen. <laughs> Like, like like what you were describing with Pete Sampras, David. Yes, trying to desperately chase that sixth consecutive year, doing doing the sorts of things I imagine he he never thought he'd do. Um, I, I, I personally, I don't think he would do that, but he might. I may be wrong. I don't think he's. I think Sampras really just wanted that specific record. I don't think most titles. I, I'm not sure whether Federer. The, the only thing, the only caveat to that is, I, I think Federer didn't think he had a chance of reaching it a, a few years ago. That was the one Jimmy Connors record that seemed so out of reach for everybody over a hundred titles when nobody else was anywhere near. That I think. It's probably a surprise to Federer, really, that he's playing. I mean, crack, he's going to be 40 next year. I think it is a bit of a surprise to hit even him that he's able to still 
contemplate winning titles. And and he's obviously amassed, yeah, 103. I mean, that's he is within reach now. So maybe, maybe it will maybe it will become more important to him the closer he gets. Yeah, I think he would have had in his mind though this year being big in terms of him having a chance of catching that record. He's lot. I mean, he's obviously lost a lot of time, a whole year with no titles when you're 38, 39. I felt this time last year that was in reach, that record. He's going to have to play two or three more years, I think, probably, to get that. He's, he doesn't win more than two or three titles a year now. So it's well, not that likely. An, unless he sets his sights a bit lower, Matt. Yeah, I just yeah. don't think he will. He could Into play. Newport. He could play Cologne one and two <laughs> next year. Imagine if he ends, ends, enters Newport the week after Wimbledon. Look, I would That'd be love good. that. I just don't think that record is important enough to him for him to do that. What if it's the only one he can have? <laughs> I, I didn't think it was that important to him either until I saw him win Dubai last year to get that hundredth mm. title. Um. And and then go to Indian Wells, um, and he lost that to team in the final there. But and it suddenly, I think, as you say, David, he never thought it was achievable. And then suddenly, once he saw it on the horizon, I think he he did want it, does want it. I don't know if he, he be- wants it. Nur Sultan wants it, but we'll <laughs> yeah. we'll find out. You've basically only got a chance of getting there if you play till 40, which only him and Connors have done. Mm. Do you think Federer has enhanced his legacy by playing on so long and yet being a, and yet being around at the time when Djokovic and Nadal are likely going to overtake him? For example, if he'd retired in three or four years ago when he had the lead of slams, and then he sat out and watched Djokovic and Nadal overtake him. Is there any difference in how he's perceived, how he's viewed? I I personally think all this longevity element is enhancing his record and the ability to main, keep not quite at the top, but basically at the top so late into his 30s and play the Grand Slam finals he's played in the last few years have enhanced his legacy. But we don't categorically view him now as the greatest of all time, whereas a few years ago we did. And is that because he's played on and not been quite as successful or is it just because Nadal and Djokovic look, are looking like overtaking him? That's what, why it is for me. The numbers tell you where we stand. I mean, yes, if he'd have stopped before winning those additional slams or if are you saying if he'd have got to 20 and then called it a day? For example, Is that, is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, look, that would have been a good number to stop on, I suppose. Um, and he could have thought, oh, I'll, I'll be all right here. <laughs> 20, they're not going to catch that. <laughs> but um, no, I I, I just re- always remember back many, many years ago to that interview when he said, I want to be one of those players like Jimmy Connors who plays into my late 30s. And I remember thinking, Roger, I love you, but you're in cloud cuckoo land, mate, because you're not going to be doing that. Um, because nobody did that. There's only Connors that had done that. So, I mean, Ken Rosewall going back. Wait, but honestly, I just didn't see it. No, having seen Pete Sampras stop in his, I think, at age 29, and um, this was this would have been before, I'm trying to think when Agassi, Agassi got to 36, but, you know, he was absolutely set on that in his own mind, that it wasn't about the Grand Sam title number that he was talking about. He really 
liked the idea of just being around for as long as he could and getting the very most out of it. And it it just shone a light on how much he just purely loves the competitive sport and the lifestyle. Mm. Helena in Sao Paulo asks, uh, this one came in uh, on email, this question. Uh, She asks, can Dominic Team win Roland Garros before... Rafael Nadal nat- retires. Eyebrow raised from, from Matt Roberts? I think probably not. And that is no slight on Dominic Team. I just think Roland Garros these last two years, if it's taught us anything, well, not just two years, last 13 years, how good Nadal is there in those conditions, on that surface, on that court. And I think... If Nadal were to have another slump, i.e. like he had in 2015 and 2016 when he didn't win Roland Garros, he might retire this time. So I'm not sure there necessarily will be a point where he's struggling like he was then. I think if he does go through that, that might be the end of his career, given his age. I mean, the gap to Nadal on clay is so large. I mean, we saw it in the in the final, Nadal against Djokovic. We... We all gave Djokovic a big chance in that match and he was blown away. And I think Nadal can do similar to team, even even though team is is brilliant. Yeah, I think I think he would be relying on Nadal playing through a slump like he did in twenty fifteen and sixteen and I'm not convinced that will happen. But I guess it's possible. I disagree. I think team can do it. I thought team was going to do it this year. Now, I was wrong. <laughs> um, but but I do believe the tennis level is is getting closer to Nadal on clay for him. Um, and I think it's going to he's going to continually get better, I believe, because I think he's got an, a real appetite for improvement and, and maximizing Dominic team. And physically, he's the closest one to Nadal. I think in terms of just brute strength, power, endurance, he's got all and speed. He's got he's got so much of what Nadal's got physically. I think I think maybe there the, there are one or two fragilities in the game that Nadal just doesn't have on that surface because of his the makeup of the one handed um, style. Um, but I also think that there's there's a chance. You know, we're we're kind of assuming that with Nadal, when he stops, he will just stop at the top, and he may deteriorate. He may not time his exit strategy from the sport in a way that enables him to just go out on top. So we may see him get old in a French Open final one day and be up against Team and get a bit of a a, a reality check of of his age and that it's time to stop. That that may well be something that happens. Isn't that sort of what Matt said, though? You'd be relying on Nadal playing through a slump, whether that's an age-induced slump or a yeah, tendonitis-induced con- slump. But Matt's conclusion is that that's, that, that won't happen. Mm. What do you mm. think, Catherine? I, I think both scenarios mm. are plausible to the extent that it's probably a 50-50, really, Um if I had to commit now, I'd, I'd probably edge what Matt said. Um, if I had to make a prediction, 
I'd say no, he won't. But uh, I do think it's both scenarios are so possible. Um, and I think anybody that that could say they feel confidently um, about it would probably be probably be lying. I don't think Nadal could even feel confident about it because he doesn't know where his body's going to take him, does he? Um, his body's surprised him in good and bad ways so many times over the course of his his career. So, yeah, I, I think if you're going to make me commit, I'll say no, but I'm fully prepared to be wrong. He's good enough to. Of course he's good enough to, I, I think whether he whether he will um is is quite another question uh tristan bullis asks what is the best and worst aspect of each slam where would we like to start you don't eat you don't both have to do every slam if you don't if there's one slam where something is springing readily to mind then right well i'll do australia then because mm-hmm. i've already thought about that um the best features the sun uh, I, but 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 i think that that's um that's just obvious I, I would actually go for its ambition and its innovative approach there is always something new when you go to the australian open they've thought about something that they want to improve every single time that i've ever been and i've been going since 2003 most recently they they were streaming qualifying and they were playing practice matches on show courts between Dominic Team and Rafael Nadal things like that what a great idea you know they've got they've they always seem to have been the first to to have new courts and they seem to rustle up these new courts in no time at all with roofs and and a design and I I do love all that I think it's a, such a fresh place every time you go there um on the negative side I think it's becoming increasingly restrictive in terms of how you can cover it um it's it's difficult to get places i suppose uh, that you might want to cover and also their own sense of them being a media production agency to the point where they create their own content and look we all do it we do it at queens as well we create our own content we have a team for that but i think to some degree it can be at the expense of a neutral media um, and, I, and I think that that is something that the, the integrity of media coverage is is vital, really. Um, and, uh, you know, they've also had a little bit of they've had that surveillance mentality as well with cameras everywhere. And, and whilst it can uncover some absolute gems and create amazing moments, I also think I feel like it's borderline uh, to, to, to being intrusive in a way that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Mm. I also thought about Australia. I thought the I agree with everything David said. Um, the the fact that it's the start of the year I think is such an ad- advantage for the Australian Open. There's such a freshness to everyone at that tournament. The players, the people covering it, the fans, so many new storylines. I think that's really an advantage that it's got. Um, one of the most negative aspects for me is the fact that. Margaret Court's name is still on that stadium. I I completely agree with you that they're ahead of the curve in so many aspects and so progressive in so many aspects, but I I find it staggering, really, that that name is still on that stadium. Um, yeah, those were the two that, 
the two things that jumped out to me for the Australian Open in addition to what you've mm. said. French Open. For, for me, the obviously the negatives are jumping out first. Uh, <laughs> for, for me, the negative is, it, the biggest negative is the size of, of that site. Um, I find it suffocating and claustrophobic and um, at times anxiety inducing. I want to... I want to enjoy, uh, and I expect this will only be amplified after this year when things do return to some kind of normality. I want to be able to enjoy the buzz of being in a crowd and being surrounded by other tennis fans. And I I so often can't do that at the French Open because I'm anxious about being in that crowd. I had a very bad experience there last year. I was sort of in a crush around the, the bullring court. Um and I know they're just, it's, it's, you know, it's a huge city. There just isn't the space to expand in the way they'd like. I'm sure they'd love an extra load of acres to add to the site and they just can't. But it is um, a significant downside to me. I really like the chips in the media restaurant. Though. <laughs> I, I've never been, so I can't judge it. Uh, other than the only thing I can say, as a TV watching experience, I absolutely love the acoustics of the main court Philippe Chatrier. I love the sound the ball makes reverberates around the, that stadium. And the same with the, the when the player makes uh, a, a grunt as they hit the ball or if they hit a great shot, the sound of the crowd. I think it is one of the great sounds in tennis. I love the clay. Probably my favourite surface to watch tennis on and less so this year, but it always feels like the culmination of a season where you've got these build-up events leading up to it and then everyone gathers for the French Open. Um, it does have a bit of a charm being the only non-English-speaking slam. Maybe that's helped by the fact that I speak French, but I always appreciate the chance to kind of live tennis in a different language for a few weeks, and that's that's mm. something I enjoy. Um, I would agree with you on the worst aspects. I think it's it's lovely, the complex... It's just not big enough and mm. it doesn't quite fit the demands of it, I don't think. But hopefully, mm. I mean, they've they've made some improvements in the last year and I think they were doing more this year. So, uh, well, for example, the ballroom court has gone, hasn't it? So there's more space there now. So mm. hopefully when we do return, that will be that will be improved. I would say in the positives, the Simone Mathieu court is one of my it was instantly became one of my favorite courts in tennis um and it's probably my favorite new new court um it's absolutely beautiful and in terms of a site expansion um that is brilliantly done because a lot of the french open site isn't aesthetically pleasing it's very concrete um you know it's beautiful from the inside and i like the changes they've made to chatrier but externally it's not the most aesthetically uh, pleasant site. But the Simone Mathieu Court is gorgeous. And one last negative, and it really is a big one for me, that that audio clip of the woman going, ah, <laughs> all the time. What's that, I think it, I think it accompanies some sort of uh, Perrier ad advert that flashes up on the screen, but it needs to go and it needs to go now. I'm sure the fact that we've just mentioned it or I've just mentioned it and we've given Perrier a plug <laughs> ju justifies its very existence. But, Let's uh, roll them out of sponsors then. 
I love I love a Perrier water, David. Uh, I really do. Uh, I just but, but don't enjoy a Perrier. sort of uh, semi-sexualized uh, woman sighing. Uh, I just it's blah. No, it's just irritating. Uh, aside from anything else, uh, Wimbledon. I mean, the sort of the best and worst aspect of Wimbledon is is the same thing for me. It's the tradition. It's the tradition is what makes it special and unique, and what gives it that kind of spine tingling feel. That the the silence and the awe and the kind of the reverence of being at Wimbledon, but. If, and I do love all of that. I, I'm completely divided over this, but I also kind of hate it. I don't. I, I don't like a silent centre court. I love a raucous Arthur Ashe Stadium. I don't. You know, the same tradition that makes it so special is also the tradition that makes it really um, not inclusive feeling. Sometimes you can feel like an outsider, and you know, I'm a. I'm a sort of middle-class white person, so I can't Im- imagine how other demographics of society feel when wandering around Wimbledon. Um, and, you know, the, as we were saying on last week's show, the, we were talking about the all-white rule. It's created this fantastic brand and sense of tradition, and I, and I completely accept that. It is a huge branding success, but I also think it's really wrong. Um, so, yeah, and I, I kind of I battle with all of that so that would be my mm. my uh, tuppence for Wimbledon yeah and just to pick up on that theme of the same thing being the best and worst aspect about it I agree with what you said on the tradition I also think this might be a Brit centric point but the fact that so many people care about it I also find both great and sometimes a bit difficult because there's just so much attention and focus on it and I, I used to be really snobby about that. And I used to think, well, if you care about Wimbledon, why don't you care about all the other brilliant tennis events that there are? Um, I understand now that that's, you know, I'm guilty of that in other sport. You know, I dip in and out. Um, but it can occasionally lead to a lot of, I don't know, uncomfortable headlines, tabloids, just weird stuff that makes me a bit uncomfortable about Wimbledon. Um, and yet at the same time, it's also great for us that, people are so enthusiastic about it we you know just sort of selfishly we see an upturn in podcast listeners and people caring about tennis and i i realize now that that is a good thing that it has um so that i always struggle a little bit with that tension during the wimbledon fortnight mm. uh, i i would just add that the style with which they modernize and monetize is without peer mm. Oh, is that it? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they've got a, a whole suite of sponsors now, which I, in the past, when I was a kid, I didn't know they had. They, they, they seemed to be quite fiercely anti-sponsorship. Okay, they had Robinson's Barley Water and Slazenger, and those are the only two things you knew about. But in recent years, they've developed a they've, – they've basically monetized everything notable. They've got, they've got sponsors – you know, really good sponsors around the site, but you just don't know about it because it's not in your face all the time. It's not just slapped on everything with the style mm. of the tournament having changed. And I really, I really appreciate that as a as a as a viewer. Um, and I also 
feel that the way they've modernized the site and and made it better and yet still haven't lost that feeling of it being Wimbledon. It still feels traditional. It still is beautiful in its own way. And um, they've they've done an incredible branding job on the place mm. um, th- to the point where saying that it's well-branded feels like an insult that, hmm. th- that it doesn't deserve. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I know what you mean. And finally, folks, the US Open. Well, it's just a, it's just amazing. You feel like anything goes when you go to the US <laughs> Open. I just feel like, right, do whatever I like here. Gloves you know, are anything off. that I anything that I could think of that would be would seem extreme is not going to seem extreme here. So <laughs> this is going to yeah, be. David's amazing. not even tall at the US Open. <laughs> no, that's right. I'm yeah. not even badly dressed at the US Open. <laughs> Night sessions, I would say, yes. at the US Open. Yeah, they, obviously Australia yeah. has night sessions, but there's something more energetic about the New York mm. night sessions. Um, I think the the proximity of Manhattan as well is a is a big plus for it. It's a I've only been once, but it was just just an experience, I suppose, just being there. Which yes, I mean Melbourne, Paris, London, incredible cities as well, but just there's something about New York and its energy and its atmosphere that then translates to Flushing Meadows and the tennis. Yeah. Anyone anyone missing it? Mm. Mm. It can be a difficult place to work at. Uh, sometimes you go in the press conference room and the audio is not working and, you know, stuff like that. They just haven't thought about that. Um, yeah, and it can you, be you... sort of 45 degrees <laughs> and 80% humidity. Yeah. And before you know it, you've got an air conditioning hose <laughs> between your knees and... Uh, <laughs> Not an innuendo, and uh, and uh, and your feet are in a bucket of ice, and yeah, ah, happy memories. Back next year, maybe. Let's hope so. Let's oh, hope so. I certainly hope so. Hey, let's let's all envisage a utopian future in which we all, in ten months' time, are headed out to the U.S. Open in a. Uh, a democratic America uh, and yeah there are crowds and it's all fun and lovely yeah oh yes 100% great well I hope you consider that a a an, a sufficient and appropriate celebration of Matt Roberts Day I think we have Matt Roberts Day shout outs yes we definitely do um to Rory O'Neill. Hello, Rory. All right, Rory. I've got a, uh, my godson or guide son is called Rory. So I love that name. Hello, Rory. Hello, both Rory's. <laughs> uh, Josh Boehm. Hello, Josh. Thanks, Josh. I haven't got any guide children called Josh, but I like the name nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris Wiley. I almost said Chris Whitty then. Chris Wiley. <laughs> Imagine if Chris Whitty was a listener. Well, I mean, of course he is. But anyway, Chris Wiley's better. Thanks, Chris, for uh, for backing the podcast. Chris, I hope you're enjoying your job more than Chris Whitty's <laughs> enjoying his this year. For anyone that doesn't know, Chris Whitty is the chief medical officer uh, advising uh, advising the UK government on all things COVID. Yeah, when I say better, I meant better because he listens to the podcast. Chris Whitty's yes. quite important, so <laughs> keep doing what you're doing, Chris. <laughs> yes, both Chris's. Keep on keeping on. Um so that is your second tennis podcast for this week. We're going to be back on Monday reviewing 
Paris, um, talking about any other bits and bobs of news. We've had we have had a couple of people getting in touch that have sort of discovered us for the first time recently, asking about how they can support the podcast. Uh, I'm sure having uh, just listened to those shout outs, there are all sorts of people thinking, how could I get uh, my name dissected by Catherine Whitaker on the tennis podcast? <laughs> um, we are going to be running uh, our annual Kickstarter uh, campaign from the start of uh, December. Uh, we're preparing for that now. There'll be more details to follow. Um, so yeah, that we're making plans for the year 2021, which I think we've all agreed that we are going to feel positive and hopeful about even me, even cynical old me. Um, so we'll be back on Monday. It won't be Matt Roberts Day. But um, Matt Roberts will be there. So what more could you want? We'll see you then. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.